There are many things amusing and interesting in our life and surprising. It's actually surprising to me to sit up here on the fifth day, fifth full day of Sashin and look out and realize, oh, everyone is still here. Amazing. It is amazing. It is amazing that this many people would come and sit for a whole week and look into the nature of their mind and, and their being. So this is the fifth full day of Rohatsu Sashin 2017. And it is a miracle. Here we all are. And it's not easy. Sometimes it's easy during Sashin and it just flows, and then other times there's friction. Often in the middle of Sashin, or a little bit past the middle, the mind becomes a bit uncooperative, and it either says, okay, that's enough delving into my nature. (laughs) I will just put you to sleep again. Mm So drowsiness can emerge, that's normal. Or the mind says, okay, I've been quiet for long enough. Let's have a chat. Let's actually, let's have a long chat. <laughs> so don't get discouraged by that. It's just, it's just the, mind, the mind really at a certain point, and you may have noticed this uh, almost unnameable, unsourceable fear arising the mind begins to get nervous when it realizes we're really serious about sitting here and seeing deeply into its nature or its non-nature. So please be steadfast in the face of those things arising. I was smiling before when I was getting onto the platform because people think, oh, I would love to be ordained love to wear the robe, but it's like putting a parachute on and then trying to be graceful in a parachute. It forces you to be mindful, very mindful. Um, and, and you'll get all gathered the way you're supposed to gather to get everything up so you don't sit on your okesa and so on. And you get up, and you start to get up, and then you realize your hand has disappeared, and you cannot find it in this <laughs> mass of cloth. And then, whoa, there it is. Oh, yes, good. I still, I still got a hand. Okay, onward. So it's important to take ourselves lightly during session, very seriously. This, what we're doing is very serious and very important. Probably the most important thing that human beings can do probably the most important thing that human beings can do. But the self, as we begin to see through it, is kind of ridiculous. All of its posturing, all of its defending, all of its complaining, all of its arrogance. self-criticism, amazing. Okay, we're going to continue with um, a little bit of some of the Chinese women 
ancestors and their life and writing. And then uh, as Zen moved on to Japan with one of the Jap Japanese uh, women Zen teachers. So this is from Daughters of Emptiness, poems of Chinese Buddhist nuns. And it's filled with stories of their lives, brief stories, and then some of their poems. So this is, there's a series of poems. This woman was quite uh, prolific in her poetry. Jifu. Jifu was born in Huzhou province in Jiangsu to the Li family and was an extremely precocious young girl. She received Dharma transmission from Chan Master Ji Chu Hong Chu, 1605 to 1672, who was the Dharma successor of Han Yue Fazang, who was himself was a Dharma heir of Miyun Yunwu, but later broke with his teacher over a number of doctrinal issues. Jifu served as the abbess of Miaozan and the Lingrui convents, both located in Hangzhou, Suzhou area. However, we have few details of her life apart from what be, can be gleaned from her poems, sermons, and other writings. In fact, she left two collections of writings. First of these is a five-chapter collection of sermons, poems, and other writings compiled during the time she was abbess of Miaozhan convent. The second collection appeared to have been printed after her death. So this is a very lovely series of poems called Song of the Twelve Hours of the Day. This is a song for each hour. Middle of the night, the first hour. So this is actually a, a theme in Chan and Zen practice that, that the day begins at night. In uh, Soto, in Soto, traditional Soto Zen, the, the day begins, the, the, the practice day begins at 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. And here she's talking about beginning in the middle of the night. So when you wake up in the middle of the night, which often happens during session at this stage, because all of the armor and barriers that we've erected uh, around ourselves to protect ourselves are dissolving. And then there's a vast amount of energy in the universe, unlimited actually, and it can flow in and you need less sleep and you're more awake and you may wake up in the middle of the night completely normal. Just continue your meditation, relax the body and then relax the mind, let dispel all worry and continue your meditation practice. Relaxing the body and then relaxing and opening the mind to whatever phenomenon are there. And um, Hogan often wakes in the middle of the night and does sometimes hours of meditation, just watching the shimmering, watching the dark, watching things come and go. Middle of the night, the first hour. In my dreams, I go here and there and don't know how to stop myself treading into pieces the green of the eastern hills and the western peaks, then turning over to find one's been nestled in the bed covers all along. Hmm, true, right? We go anywhere in our dreams. And then, oh, here we are, back in a body in bed. But it gives us a taste of the freedom that's possible in this practice. 
The cock crows the second hour. All the routines of everyday life, each one naturally in accord. Over there, by the banks of the river, they scrub their faces until they shine. Over here, rinsing the mouth with tea, then swallowing it down. Dawn breaks, the third hour. I am alone here among 10,000 forms, and I can bear my body. If the Buddha and ancestors came, they'd find it hard to overpower me. Only if a person is herself willing can anyone become intimate with her. Now, this is a theme which will be picked up in the, hist in the history of another uh, woman nun. A life for the nuns was not easy. And uh, they, from the time of the Buddha, they could be raped. In fact, one of the reasons that the Buddha created a lot of extra rules for the women, including women nuns, that they couldn't go walking by themselves is that nuns were raped, and he wanted to protect them. The sun rises, the fourth hour. In the coral tree groves, the colors are bright and radiant. There is no need to look anywhere else for the Buddha, Gautama. His 16-foot-tall golden body is in a single blade of grass. As the grass, as the sun rises and diamonds appear in the grass, to see the 16-foot body of the Buddha emerging. The 1,600-mile body of the Buddha. Mealtime, the fifth hour. In the new pot, fragrant, mouth-watering, grains of fresh rice. When I've finished eating my porridge, I go wash my bowl. Then tell the Dharma master to correct and instruct the others. So this is very interesting. Fragrant rice. Fragrant rice porridge. You may notice that with hours of meditation, the senses open. And uh, my experience is particularly the sense of smell becomes very acute. And I can't say that I have smelled rice as fragrant, but obviously it is. I remember sitting through the night in Yaza at Sogenji, deep into the night, and uh, in the bamboo grove, and I suddenly realized I could smell the bamboo. I'd never smelled bamboo before. Mid-morning, the sixth hour. Do not split up the great emptiness into this and that. Bells and clappers in the wind are very good at preaching, explaining everything in detail without using a single word. Last night we had cows and coyotes preaching in detail, explaining everything without using a single word. It was very, very entrancing mu music. The sun shifts south, the seventh hour. Those who are fond of leisure do not pound on Honshan's drum. When there's free time, I climb the mountain and stroll about. And when I'm weary, seat myself on the meditation mat once more. So the kind of leisure that enters our life when we're free of the burden of self and the mind's incessant talking and criticizing and judging. Freedom to hear, because of where she lived, climb the mountains and stroll about. But this also refers to an inner freedom to climb mountains and stroll about. 
the sun begins to sink, the eighth hour. From the twelve-sectioned canon, we can know how to behave. With bowed head, I place my trust in the great one above and venture to ask how to apply it to this summer of 1665. Late afternoon, the ninth hour. My understanding is still on this side of the river crossing. So she's being very honest and humble about her understanding. My understanding is still on this side of the great river crossing. I chide myself that my cultivation practice is not stronger. When all goes well, I am happy. When it doesn't, I get angry. So very honest about her practice. The sun sets, the tenth hour. A curve of moon hangs over the willow by the window. I blow on the kindling and the furnace fills with smoke. Four or five flecks of dark ash fly up over my head. So these poems are, uh, the Chinese poems in particular, very evocative of these tiny details, which usually the mind passes over. But when the mind is clear from meditation, every tiny detail is, is quite beautiful. Golden dusk, the eleventh hour. Time for the mice to venture out to steal the pale honey. At the foot of my bed, they make a racket late into the night, which disturbs this mountain monk so she cannot sleep. That reminds me of my first uh, seven-day session at ZCLA. I was sleeping with another woman in the library. So sometimes I feel very badly about our guest dorm here, but at ZCLA, we slept on the floor between the stacks in the, in the library. So you had a little space between rows of, of, of bookcases. And uh, we had just settled down for the night. And I was feeling so peaceful and so loving and so calm. And then I heard squeak, squeak. And then I heard um, the, I heard a cat pounce on the mouse. And the mouse screamed. And then there was a crunch. And then crunch. And then crunch. I thought, OK, I guess this is included. <laughs> took quite a while to finish off that mouse. <laughs> Everyone settled the twelfth hour. The mustard, the mustard seed drinks dry, the fragrant water seed. So when we're really dry, like a dry mustard seed, we can soak up so much. So much. There's so much in the Dharma to soak up. Mazumi Roshi after we'd all been transmitted and left and we would go back and meet with him, he would say, there's so much still that I have to offer you and there's so little time. Beneath my robes, the Mani Jewel suddenly radiates light, singing in unison with the lanterns on the outside pillars. The Mani Jewel suddenly radiates light underneath my robe, singing in unison with the lanterns on the outside pillars. And there's one little, little poem. About death, this is from Yi Kui, 
one of the seven Dharma heirs of Master Jing Gang, the great-granddaughter of a minister of justice and the daughter of a scholar-painter. She had two sisters and two brothers, one of whom, Ji Lin, would play a particularly central role in her life. Yikui was by all accounts a precociously intelligent girl who not only mastered the feminine arts of sewing and embroidery, but also excelled in the arts of painting and poetry writing. She married a young scholar and apparently fulfilled all of the requirements of a good wife and daughter-in-law happily and successfully. In the fall of 1648, however, her husband, with whom she had a companionate marriage, these are arranged marriages, so there's no guarantee it would be a companionate marriage, passed away, leaving Yi Kui a widow at the age of 23. After her husband's death, Yi Kui retreated to her room where she remained in seclusion, eating a minimal vegetarian diet and engaging in single-minded Buddhist recitation. Later, she became interested in Chan meditation and sought out the guidance of Master Jing Gang, under whom she eventually took ordination. She lived in a convent, but then after her master died, she moved into a hermitage on the riverbank, which her brother had built for her, which was called Cloister of Investigating Communality. Commonality. And then it, the cloister quickly developed into a fairly large establishment, and she had a lot of disciples. After, seven years after she took over the leadership of Crouching Lion Convent, her designated successor and Dharma sister, Yi Gong, fell ill and overwork, from exhaustion and overwork and died. So then uh, Yi Kui had to remain as the abbot. And then after six years, she moved back to her hermitage, where she died at the age of 54. And her, this collection is compiled several years before her death. So this is one of her poems poems. All of her life, this fellow has been as tough as nails. Once I dug my heels in, I could not be moved. At 24, I first found out about this matter, and for 10 years struggled to forget outward appearances. At 49, I cut myself loose from this suffering world and could see through the mundane affairs as if through water. I got to the truth of things and could leave when I wished. So what is the meaning of leave when I wished? But I stuck to my labors for seven more seasons of spring. Now in front of your eyes, the iron nails will turn to dust, and the four great elements will disperse like wind and fire. When leaves fall, one knows autumn has come. Now is the time for me to return to the source. Ha, ha, ha! Footloose and fancy free, that's me. So that refers to freedom from her administrative role as twice abbess of a convent, but also the internal freedom, the ultimate freedom, which is there no matter what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Dogen Zenji wrote in praise of Miao Xin, who lived about 880, so this was hundreds of years before Dogen Zenji. Miaoxin, who's in our uh, chant lineage of women ancestors, was a disciple of Yangshan. 
as was a woman that I'll be talking about a little bit later, Iron Grinder Ma. When Yangshan was looking to choose a director of the monastery's office for secular affairs, he asked around among the retired senior and junior officers. This is, this is what Dogen Zenji wrote. Which person would be suitable to appoint? After an exchange of questions and answers, Yangshan at last said, although Miao Xin, the kid from the river region, is a woman, she has the determination of a person of great resolve. She is truly the one qualified to serve as the director of the Office for Secular Affairs. All in the assembly agreed. When in the end, Miao Xin was appointed director of the Office for Secular Affairs, the dragons and elephants among Yangshan's disciples had no misgivings. Although this was not an important office, she was careful in performing her duties as benefiting one who had been chosen for this responsibility. After Miao Xin had taken up her position and was residing in the Office for Secular Affairs, 17 monks from Shu banded together to go in search of a teacher to ask about the way. Thinking that they would climb Yangshan, so that's the name of the master and the mountain. At sunset, they took lodging in the office for secular affairs. During the evening lecture, while they were resting, someone brought up the story of Kao Ki Chuao Zhu's words on the wind and the flag. But what each of the 17 monks had to say was wide of the mark. So they're discussing a, um, a story which is recurrent in Zen literature of monks who are debating, they're watching a flag flapping, and they're debating. Is, it, is the flag moving or is the wind moving? So the, uh, the, the master who overhears this gives different responses hmm, and different stories. But here it is happening again. Hmm. So the, the mind is relentless in arising in different generations and getting into arguments about the very same things. But what each of the 17 monks had to say was wide of the mark. At that time, Miao Xin, who was on the other side of the wall, heard the monks and said, How lamentable, you 17 blind donkeys! How many straw sandals have you wasted in your, in your futile search for the Dharma? The Buddha Dharma has not yet appeared even in your dreams. <laughs> At that time, there was a postulant who, having heard the disapproving remarks about these monks by Miao Xin, reported them to the 17 monks. The 17 monks did not resent her disapproval. So this is also key. Did not resent her criticism and, their and her disapproval. To the contrary, they were ashamed that their words were inadequate, and so comporting themselves in the proper fashion, they offered incense, did obeisance, meaning bowed, and in respectfully inquired about the Dharma. Miao Xin then said, step forward. As the 17 monks were walking towards her, Miao Xin said, it's not the wind moving, it's not the flag moving, it's not the mind moving. Instructed in this fashion, all 17 monks were awakened. They expressed their gratitude, establishing the formal relationship of teacher and disciple, and quickly returned to Western Shu. In the end, they never climbed Yangshan. Truly, this incident was not something that could have been accomplished by even one on the three wisdom stages or the ten noble stages. It was the practice of the way in the unbroken transmission from the Buddhas and ancestors. So Dogen Zenji is saying to be able to 
see what was wrong in the person's mind, what was off in all of their minds, and then to address it directly. See, the, in the original koan, the ancestor hears, hears this debate and uh, about, is it the wind moving or is it the flag moving? And the ancestor says, it's not the wind moving, it's not the flag moving, it's your mind moving. But here Miao takes it one step further. It's not the wind moving, it's not the flag moving. It's not the mind moving. Well, that leaves us. We had an answer before. Oh, it's my mind moving. And now we have no answer. What is moving? So this is something that just spontaneously flows out and responds to a need. Not something that can be accomplished by all the different stages of uh, moving up through the ranks in in whatever business you're in, including the Zen business. It's the direct practice of the way, where the wisdom flows out when there's nothing in the way. There's a very lovely koan. How do you know that there is wind? How do you know that there is wind? We have this word. We all agree on, oh yeah, wind. Wind is blowing, the wind's not blowing. But how do we know that there is wind? So uh, another woman, who strong woman, who existed at this time and practiced Zen is called uh, Liu Te Mo, is what we call her in our chant lineage. But she was called Iron Grinder Ma because she ground monks, young monks, up like a grindstone grinds grain, pulverized them. And her, uh, her, her, her um, teacher, and then later her companion in the way, was Kuishan, who was a successor of Faichang. And uh, Kuishan had a huge monastery, 1,500 people, 43 enlightened disciples. And Kuishan called himself, in Japanese we called him Wishan, in Chinese, Kuishan. And he called himself a water buffalo, which is a hint that helps you understand this koan. So he called himself a water buffalo, which is, reminds us of another koan, Wisan's buffalo. Several koans about buffaloes. So Guishan called himself a water buffalo. So Iron Grinder Liu, who's living about a mile away from the monastery, comes to Guishan's place. And she says, Iron Grinder says, Tomorrow there's a great communal feast on Taishan. Are you going to go, teacher? Taishan is 600 miles away. And the feast is tomorrow. So this is not an ordinary question. Tomorrow there's a great communal feast. So we have to look in koans at all the words. What is the feast? What is this communal feast she's asking about? Are you going to go, teacher? Kuishan lay down, sprawled out. So he just lay down, sprawled his body out, completely relaxed. Iron Grinder immediately left. So this beautiful little vignette in their lives that's been preserved. 
and it has a very warm, warm texture to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's Dharma combat where there are sparks flying, and she had the reputation of, of being able to do that, grind people up with sparks flying. But that's not what's happening here. There are other koans that are about Zen masters tossing a, a ball back and forth and enjoying the ball. And many of the koans the, depend on knowledge that, they, that these people acquired by doing other koans. So the buffalo lying down in front of the gate is another koan. Zen master said, hundreds of years from now, I will be reborn as a buffalo. And you will find me lying down outside the gate of the monastery. So you can imagine, Hogan says, hundreds of years from now, I'll be reborn as one of those cows down there that was mooing all night. And you'll walk outside the gate of the monastery and you'll see this old cow lying down. And then the master asks, whose name is written on the side of the cow? So this is, they, this is the kind of uh, back and forth that they would have been very familiar with. So she asks him, are you going to go to this feast 600 miles away tomorrow? And he lies down, completely relaxed, and then she turns and leaves. Commentary, Iron Grinder Liu's name is thought to have been Liu Te Mo. Some translations refer to her as Grinder. Others use the name Grindstone. The compiler of the Blue Cliff Record comments, The nun Iron Grindstone Liu was like a stone-struck spark, like a lightning flash. Hesitate, and you lose your body and your life. She had studied for a long time. Her active edge was sharp and dangerous. Kweishan is over 600 miles from Mount Tai. How then did Iron Grindstone Lu want to have Kweishan go to the feast? Tell me, what was her meaning? This old lady understands Kweishu's conversation. Fiber coming, thread going, one letting go, one gathering in. They answer back to each other like two mirrors reflecting each other without any reflecting image to be seen. Action to action, they complement each other. Phrase to phrase, they accord. People these days can be poked three times and not turn their heads. But this old lady couldn't be fooled one little bit. So this is what we all hope to attain, this kind of ease in life. To be poked and not to be fooled. To be poked and not have the mind rise to the bait. There's all kinds of poking in the world. All kinds of ways we can get tripped up and snared. To be free, to really be free. So now we move to a Japanese nun, the nun Aishun, who lived in the mid-1300s. So the uh, Japanese flavor is different from the Chinese flavor. Uh, the Chinese flavor of the poems, you could see, is very um, lyrical, almost mystical, seeing, seeing the truth everywhere in the shadow moving across the stone, in the moon reflecting in the water, in the breeze, in the, in the pine trees. But then uh, in, in 
in China in, in, in Chan dialogue. It's very direct. And that continues in, in Japan. So the, the nun Aishun was the sister of Ryo-an Emyo, who was abbot of Saijoji. And his, his sister Aishun was very beautiful. She was renowned for her beauty. But she had never married. She refused to marry. And so she was past 30 when she went to Saijoji to ask her brother to ordain her. But he refused, saying, the monastic life is only for the manly. Men and women cannot change their lot. If I readily ordain women, then many monks would be corrupted. So this is a very old belief that women are corrupting. And, you know, simply speaking, the beautiful, we see it here, a nice-looking woman, young woman walks in, and you can see the attention, and the behavior changes. Oh, <laughs> better behave a little bit better. <laughs> Got to impress this woman, and vice versa. Sometimes the young man comes, and you can see the women pay attention. And then the mind naturally goes to, oh, fantasies of relationship and so on, which is extremely difficult and extremely distracting. If I readily ordain women, then many monks would be corrupted. This is what the Buddha said when, when his stepmother, his foster mother, his aunt, came and asked that the women be ordained. She came with a huge gathering of women, some of whom were widows because of wars, and some of whom were effective widows because their husbands had up been ordained and gone off with the Buddha, and there they were left to cope on their own. That was very difficult for women in India. Traditionally, both in India and in China, you had to have the three, the three things to protect you. You had to have a father when you were younger, a husband after you married, and then a grown son if your husband died. So those three things were necessary to ensure your, literally your physical safety and, your, and getting food in India being taken care of. So the Buddha was very worried when this huge group of women, including his beloved aunt, who had raised him, came and begged for ordination. They already had shaved off their heads, had already dressed in monastic robes, and had walked for days and were covered with dust. And were weeping. You can see the tears drip, dripping down their dusty faces. And the Buddha refuses their request for ordination. But then Ananda, fortunately, intervenes. And Ananda is much beloved by women of Zen for the fact that he did step in and say to the Buddha, isn't it true that if women undertake the Dhamma and the discipline, the discipline being the precepts, that they, too, can know their own true nature? And the Buddha said, yes. That is true. The Buddha has to speak the truth. That is true. And then Ananda essentially said, well, hmm? before that, I think it's very interesting, Mahapajapati asked three times. She asked three times of the Buddha, and that's very traditional. You'll see that throughout the Pali Canon, that questions are asked three times if the Buddha is silent. 
and then it's asked again, and then it's asked again. And usually on the third try, the Buddha feels an obligation to reply. And the Buddha's reply in some translations after Mahapajapati asked him the third time when he had been silent the first two times. The reply traditionally is, please don't ask this of me, woman. And you can, you can feel the pathos. Please don't ask me of this. Don't ask this of me. Because he knows that things will get complicated. But, and yet when Ananda talks to him, Ananda clarifies the Buddha's own anxiety and distress. And so the Buddha ordains women. But here we are with the same idea. If I readily ordain women, then many monks in my monastery would be corrupted. Corrupted by their own minds, of course, not by, not by women. So then Asian seized some red-hot fire tongs and burned her face. And because of this, Ryoan was forced to admit her to the monastery. And he shaved her head and gave her the precepts and ordained her. But she continued to be sexually harassed by some of the monks. And to her brother's credit, he expelled them from the monastery. And it's said that she excelled in Zen debate. So then there's an obligation when you know you're being admitted with reluctance to prove yourself. And that can be turned into great determination. Rather than great doubt about having great doubt communicated to you, it can be turned into great determination. So here's uh, one story from her biographer. So this is recent enough that we have more biography. Twenty monks and one name, one nun who was named Asian were practicing meditation with a certain Zen master. Asian was very pretty, even though her head was shaved, her face was scarred, and her dress plain. Several monks secretly fell in love with her. One of them wrote her a love letter, insisting upon a private meeting. Asian did not reply to him right away. The following day, the master gave Taisho to the entire assembly. So, like this. And when it was over, Asian arose. Addressing the one who had written to her, she said, If you really love me so much, well, come, embrace me now. He fled. <laughs> so this was not somebody to be tampered with. Once during a visit to Ngakuji, Ngakuji was a very large, is still a very large Rinzai monastery in Kamakura, and it was founded in 1282 by the regent Hojo Tokimune. And he founded this temple at the end of six years of bloody war. Uh, the, monk, the Kublai Khan had invaded first Korea and, and conquered Korea, and then crossed the small sea between uh, Korea and Japan and invaded Japan. Um, and the, it was quite a huge invasion, th thousands of soldiers. And it said 300 large boats and 500 small boats. So you get an idea of the size of Kublai Khan's army. In, and it included Koreans who were pressed into service and also Chinese because they had been fighting in China too. 
But Hojo Tokimuni's army was able to repel the Mongolian invasion after six years of warfare, and you can imagine what that would be like in a small country like Japan. And he founded the temple to honor the dead of both sides. To honor the dead of both sides. Is that ever done in this world today? To honor one's enemies. So this too can be taken into our practice. When someone, when we have that aversion to someone or irritation with someone and it persists, how do we honor them? What is the teaching there about our own mind, our own prejudice, our own fear about ourselves? To honor our enemies. So Angokaji was named after a copy of the Sutra of Great Perfection, Sutra of Enlightenment called Engakyo. Kyo means sutra, Engakyo, which when they were doing excavation to start to build Engakuji, which didn't have a name at the time, they dug a stone chest out of the side of the mountain, and the sutra was in the chest. So the temple was named after the sutra. And at this time, in Asian's time, Engakuji had over a thousand monks, and they had a, a very uh, severe reputation were very, and especially severe in their treatment of outsiders, people who came in. So it would be like bullying, I'm sure, uh, when someone new came in, even just to visit. It could be very severe. So Ryowan and Enshu's brother wanted to send a message to the abbot of Engokuji, but none of the monks from Saijoji would go. Aishan was the only one who volunteered. Ngokuji, the, the when she approached Ngokuji, the monks saw her, and they wanted to embarrass her, harass her. So one of them rushed out of the gates and raised his robe to expose himself and said, this old monk's thing is three feet long. Aishan <laughs> calmly lifted her robe, opened her legs towards the monk, and said, this old nun's thing is deeper than that. <laughs> and continued walking. <laughs> so we have to look always in these Zen dialogues in a deeper, these layers of meaning. So there's the literal meaning with which she's besting him, but she's also besting him with something else that's deeper. Another translation is, this old nun's thing has no bottom, which is also very interesting. So what the monks were doing was othering, othering, treating another person as an object to satisfy your need for power or for pleasure, to reassure yourself that you are okay, to cover up the suffering that you need to delve into by yourself. And in this week, where we are, while we are sitting here, there is a revolution occurring in this country. It's very interesting. Probably before you came, you were aware of the accusations against movie moguls and so on. 
and resignations, sudden resignations, and various positions in society. But in this week, three US senators have resigned because of inappropriate behavior towards women. Democrats. We believe that powerful, famous, and rich people, like senators and millionaires in the movie industry and doctors to US Olympic, Olympic gymnasts and famous conductors and famous actors, Surely they have enough success and money and adulation to satisfy their need for self-accomplishment. Surely they can attract an appropriate partner and have a big choice. And yet, it's not enough. It's not enough. Everyone suffers. Everyone suffers. The Buddha told us this, but still, Somehow we believe that winning the lottery or winning the Nobel Prize would really make us happy. If they do not know the source of their suffering, if they do not know this, this, the only sure cure, they will drag many people into that well of their own pain. And there are articles now about the actresses who careers were completely, who were very promising, dozens of them, probably hundreds of them, whose careers were very promising but were derailed by sexual harassment. So it's been going on for centuries. We have to admire Aishu's, Aishu's determination and strength, inner strength. To keep on going on the path despite all of this. Another time when Eshu visited Angokuji, the abbot served her tea in a wash basin instead of a tea bowl. And immediately she said, oh, abbot, you must drink tea out of your own bowl and gave it back to him. <laughs> so this is also lovely to contemplate. Drinking tea out of your own bowl. You have to drink tea out of your own bowl. What does your bowl contain? Can you empty it? Can you dissolve the bowl itself? Anything, anything we're holding on to. So this is a koan about Asian's departure. When Asian, the Zen nun, was past 60, and was about to leave this world, she asked some monks to pile up wood in the yard. Seating herself firmly in the center of the funeral pyre, she had it set on fire around the edges. Oh, none, shouted one monk. Is it hot in there? Such a matter would concern only a stupid person like yourself, she answered. The flames arose and she passed away. So she had already been forged in fire. Forged in fire. We have to be willing to be forged. So this last uh, koan is a little, a very short one, but very sweet. It's called A Mother's Advice. Ji who was a Shingon master, 
was a well-known Sanskrit scholar in the Tokugawa era. When he was young, he used to deliver lectures to his brother students. So you can see he was very precocious. But his mother heard about this and wrote him a letter, which said, Son, I do not think you became a devotee of the Buddha because you desired to turn into a walking dictionary for others. Or we might say a walking encyclopedia. There is no end to information and commendation, glory and honor. I wish you would stop this lecture business. Shut yourself up in a little temple in a remote part of the mountain. Devote your time to meditation and in this way attain true realization. We don't know if he followed the advice. But I would give you the same advice. There is no end to the information that Google can provide us. There are infinite TEDx lectures and podcasts by Zen masters. Shut yourself up. Shut yourself up. Not just physically shut yourself up in this room, in this monastery for a week, but shut yourself up. For the next two days, and devote your energies to this most important practice, meditation. This blessed practice, meditation. Be diligent, be determined, be warm-hearted towards yourself and others. Be supremely optimistic about your enlightenment about your enlightenment continuously emerging through your own body and mind. Be fearless in the face of the many obstacles that the mind can throw up to prevent you from seeing through it to what lies behind it, to what lies behind, around, in between, and within everything. The treasure house of your life will open of itself. The treasure house of your life will open of itself and it will be yours to enjoy freely. Please, in these remaining hours, please practice diligently.